for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring fulfillment at at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Friends, would you please welcome Matt Nelson. And such an honor to be here with you today. If you would just bow your heads with me, I just want to start with a word of prayer as we enter into this time. Father, we thank you for this moment. Uh, I know so many walking into this room may be anxious, scattered, carrying weights and burdens. And God, we just set those at your feet right now in this moment. God, as we dive into your word, we just pray that you would illuminate our hearts, that Holy Spirit, that you would speak to hearts and lives this morning exactly what they need in this moment to convict, to challenge, to draw near, to remind of your steadfast love. And God, we just right now set our hearts towards you. We open our hearts to receive whatever it is that you may want to speak to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I continually just hear great, great things about Cornerstone. John has been a friend of mine for a long time. It was John, then it became Pastor John, now it's Father John is what I call him. So. <laughs> and how many know sometimes you just need pastor friends, and uh, he is one of those when we get together, uh, that we can share stories. And uh, let me just say this, and I don't know, he probably doesn't tell you this, but the last two years has been incredibly hard to pastor through. And so if you haven't regularly done this, tell your pastor how much you love him and how much you appreciate his faithfulness, and I appreciate you and your friendship. Uh, For the record, I don't have the flu. I also won't be shaking your hand on the way out, but uh, I am feeling a little bit uh, less than 100%, but glad that I could be here with you this morning. I want to honor my wife as well over here. Wave at everybody, babe. And so, love her. She really is my better half. Uh, Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration of Jesus. I, I jokingly said this, texted John last week, because We've been busy. We're moving into a new facility this year in our church and a bunch of things happening. And so I was late preparing for this message and I just texted him and I said, thanks for such an easy message because this is one of the most complex scriptures in the the gospel of Luke. You couldn't have given me like the prodigal son or something. Um, The reason is there's a lot of mystery around this particular text, what it means, how you translate it. And even scholars, theologians will kind of come to some differing conclusions on what certain things mean. As Jesus takes his inner circle and goes up and has this mountaintop experience. I don't know if any of you have ever had a mountaintop experience. Maybe something that was full of emotion and feeling. Maybe you felt the presence of God. Maybe it was supernatural or miraculous. And 
Uh, there's this tendency when you have a mountaintop moment, you want to hold on to it forever, right? And we, we just want to hold on to it, which is exactly what Peter does in our text today. And mountaintop moments are, are beautiful, they're powerful, but how many know you don't live every moment on the mountaintop? You come off the mountaintop and you live into the regular and the ordinary and the everyday and even have to walk through the valleys of life. Uh, I grew up in the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, which I'm still recovering from. No, I'm very thankful for. Uh, I actually am very thankful for. Like any denomination and tradition, you have to take the good and the bad. And my great-grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher, and my grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher. And my grandparents literally lived next door in a parsonage to the church, so I grew up in the pews. And I just grew up in that environment where we chased the mountaintop. We just tried to go from one mountaintop to the next. And in fact, it wasn't church unless there was a lady on the front row who started to go a little bit, a little bit crazy. And then it was church, right? And what I learned is that's an unsustainable rhythm because you don't live every moment on the mountaintop, do you? In fact, a lot of people who chase mountaintops struggle when they have to walk through the valleys. We're grateful for the mountaintops. We're grateful that in this moment we get to walk with Jesus in his inner circle to the mountaintop and experience what they experienced. There's many reasons why I think Jesus wanted his inner circle and James, Peter, and John to experience this, but one, to kind of give them a glimpse of what was going to come forever. Like, they saw the glory of God. It was just this, this snapshot, this mountaintop moments of what they would ultimately experience when God would redeem and restore everything, but also to prepare his disciples for what was next. Because how many know the disciples were about to walk through a pretty tumultuous time? A lot of valleys, a lot of difficulties. And here we are in this transfiguration text where James, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him, and it says, up on the mountain to pray. Here's what I particularly love about Luke, is Luke bases all of the actions of Jesus around prayer. Jesus is always coming from prayer or to prayer. The major events of Jesus' life are all gathered around prayer. Jesus withdrew, Jesus retreated, Jesus went up on the mountainside, Jesus went to a solitary place. Like the life of Jesus was so completely dependent on the Father, which I think the Gospel of Luke makes us stop for a minute and say, okay, if Jesus lived in this rhythm of life of being connected and abiding, how much more do you and I need to live a life connected to the Father, continually connected to him in prayer? Luke records nine prayers of Jesus, seven unique to his particular gospel. And again, all of the significant events of Jesus' life are around prayer. So it's not shocking that Luke would open up this passage and say Jesus was coming up on the mountainside to spend time in prayer and taking uh, James, Peter, and John with him. And it says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So there's this transformation or transfiguration moment where literally the face of Jesus changes. Moses and Elijah appear in this miraculous event. Now, I, I want to preface this real quick that each of the gospels is ultimately taking us somewhere. Each of the gospels is its own unique camera angle on the same story. But each of the Gospels is, is ultimately answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? And obviously Matthew's seeing it through the, the lens of the Jewish people, and Luke has a more Gentile theme, and we, we get all of these complexities of it. But, but who is Jesus? Is he rabbi? Is he teacher? Is he prophet? Or is he the one that we've been waiting for? Is he divine? Is he Messiah? Just a few verses earlier, if we would just backed up from this passage just a little bit, we're in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus is with his disciples 
and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And if you remember their response, he says, uh, well, some people say John the Baptist and other Elijah. And then what does Jesus do? He turns to them and says, but, but you, who do you say that I am? I, I've learned in my spiritual journey, in my walk, that if I walk with Jesus long enough, eventually Jesus is going to look at you and say, but who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Am I one among many? Or, or am I a Messiah? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then it doesn't change just what we believe, but how we live. It determines how you live your life. Like, I, I'm not going to be in this religious pluralism of taking and mixing all these things. If, if Jesus is who he says he is, he, he demands my complete and utter devotion, right? My complete loyalty. If Jesus is who he says he is, I'm not going to place myself at the center of existence and try to determine what is right, good, and true for me. I'm going to place him at the center and say, you define what is good, right, and true, and I will walk in that regardless of how I feel. And this is the question that we're wrestling with. This is the question that Jesus turns to his disciples and is asking them, who do you say that I am? You have this confession that Peter makes that, man, you're the side, that you're the son of God, and how many know Peter is either like, he's, he, he's either got it all right or all wrong, right? Ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And the transfiguration, this story, is setting the record straight about Jesus. If there was any doubt in your mind who this guy is, if there was any mystery around this, this man, this rabbi from Nazareth, now the transfiguration is, is telling you in this moment who he is. Michael Wilkins, I, I love what he writes about the transfiguration. He says, the mountain of transfiguration demands a radical shift in the disciples' worldview. They cannot remain the same. For such an unthinkable reality had never before been considered, much less occurred. Jesus, as the ontological son of God in human form, does not fit into any of their philosophical or theological or religious categories. So they must change. And this change will affect everything. Every thought about reality, every activity in their religious behavior, every dream and ambition in their personal lives. If what is said about Jesus is true, everything changes in this moment. It's now the lens and the worldview of which all of your life is going to have to be filtered through. And then the question in this story becomes, how will the disciples respond to this truth? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly grateful that the, the gospels show the shortcomings of the disciples. Have anybody noticed that? Like the book of Acts, these guys can't get it wrong. In the gospels, they cannot get it right. If you struggle in your prayer life, you are in great company. Because it seemed like every significant moment in Jesus' life, the disciples are sleeping or they miss it. I, I kind of imagine it like this. If, if, imagine there's a documentary film crew that's going to follow you around every day of your life, and so they're just going to go with you. And you do a lot of great stuff. You, you take bags and you, you feed the homeless. They don't get any of that. You say one stupid thing, right? You're like, nope, we're showing that part. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's what it's for the disciples. They probably did a lot of good things, but we, we tend to get their shortcomings, their misunderstandings, the places that they fall short time and time again. Uh, we launched our church back in 2010, and I know some of you are doing the math. Yeah, I launched it when I was 12. No, I, I didn't. I looked like I was 12 when we launched, but I wasn't. Um, and I remember one of the first sermon series we did, I went through the book of 1 Corinthians, and back then we were trying to be really hip and trendy and cool, and so I think we called it something like Church Gone Wild. Now I would just call the series 1 Corinthians, but that, that's, that's my journey that I've taken. And, uh, 
and I'm preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I get to this place, and we're actually in this text on sexual immorality, and as I'm preaching, uh, I meant to say the word city, but that's not what came out. Another word that rhymes with city but starts with a T. And, and uh, I'll let you figure that one out. I, it, it was one of those moments as I stopped and I'm like, did anybody catch that? Or can I just keep going? But then you like see the faces in the crowd and you're like, nope, they, they got that. Yeah, that, that was obvious. I can't just keep teaching. I have to stop and acknowledge that I just said that word. And so I stopped. Before that service had ended, uh, my creative director, who I later fired, no, I didn't, I should have, he uploaded this to YouTube, which over the next several weeks and months would get millions of views, because people love a good fail, don't they? I would literally go places. I would be doing a church planning training and be like, are you that one guy who said so and so? I'm like, for real? <laughs> yes, I am. You know I've preached 500 other messages that are, I don't know, pretty decent. You ever, you ever catch one of those, you know? <laughs> nope. Our, our church is doing some pretty great stuff in the city. You ever, no, you're that guy who said that thing. I just, I think that's what the disciples must have felt like. And we did a lot of really great things in the ministry of Jesus, but like we take one nap and then the transfiguration happens, right? <laughs> what a moment. What a moment. And it actually says they're waking from this kind of deep sleep. And they're waking up, and of course it's Peter, because it's always going to be Peter's looking, and he's trying to make sense of the moment. There's this cloud of glory, there's Moses and Elijah, he's, he's caught up in this mountaintop moment, and what does he want to do? He wants to capture the moment, and he wants to stay in it, right? So what does he say? Let's, let's put up some tents. Let's just get some tents, everybody can stay right here. And I love how the text is like, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> Side note, you know? He doesn't know what he's talking about. But it says a cloud covered them. And anybody reading this text would go back immediately, their, their mind would go back, and there's so many Old Testament allusions, and this could be a whole message in of itself right here of Exodus 24 and the, the cloud of glory that surrounded Moses on Mount Sinai as he receives the law, and the, the cloud by day and the pillar of night that, that led the people of Israel. It could have been the tabernacle and the temple where the, the cloud of God's glory would have filled this place. What, what is the Father saying in this moment that that the fulfillment of all those things, everything was pointing towards something, and guess what? They're pointing towards what is here and what is now. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and what Moses brought and the prophets and what Elijah did. And he's not just a good man. He's not just a teacher. He's not someone that you look at and say, yeah, I'm going to take some pieces of this and implement it into my life. He's, he demands our complete and total allegiance. And then I love what how this passage ends. He says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. I find this incredibly significant, and, and when I preach out of this, this next part, before we wrap this up, I don't preach this out of my greatest strength. It's actually probably my greatest weakness. I love that the two of the most significant events in the life of Jesus, the Father affirms his identity. Because this text will take you back to the baptism text, Matthew 3, Luke 3, where Jesus is baptized into water. He comes out, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and they hear the Father say over his son, this is my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. I don't know if you've ever taken a moment to actually think of the implications of what the Father says to his son. Because what the Father says to his son is also what the Father is speaking over you. He, he says, this is my son. My four kids were here in first service. They're, they're, they, they left. Um, 
but just to look at them and say, you're mine, right? Not because of something you did, but because you're my son, you're my daughter. It's not going to change. That status is not rise and fall depending on your performance, right? No, this is my son, and guess what? I love you. I love you. Yeah, I know what you've done, but I love you. And then the father says, in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know about you, but it does something for me when someone says, you know what? I just like being around you. Like, you're, you're just a person, like, when you walk into the room, it makes me smile. Is anybody else like, I, I, I need a friend like that? I, I think inwardly we crave to be affirmed. And I love that in this moment, in this transfigure, transfiguration moment, it's what the Father does. In fact, the transfiguration moment, I think, is for Jesus, but it's also for the disciples to hear. I think that baptism moment is really for, for the Son. And the two moments where the Father affirms his love and acceptance of his Son, that Jesus will live and minister and even suffer from this place of being affirmed by his Heavenly Father. M my wife and I get the privilege of leading a church planning network, and so I, I give about 50 to 60% of my time to the local church, which I love. But uh, God has called me to help plant churches and to train church planners. And um, we take in about four or five couples every year to our network, and we just get to help train them. And what we've realized doing this now for the last six years is so many of these couples, they'll come in and they're looking for systems and structures and funding. Tell me what I need to know to go back to my community or city and plant a life-giving church. But what we've realized over the years is many of them are carrying huge mother wounds and father wounds and have never been affirmed by somebody in their life. And let me tell you, you can look like you have it all together and you can be chasing affirmation, chasing identity. And when you fail to be uh, really affirmed in who God says you, are, says who you really are, you will try to find that affirmation in other things. Sometimes it'll be sin, sometimes it'll be a relationship, it'll be another person, performance, job, status. You're going to go seek affirmation somewhere. And there are times we'll bring these church planners in and they think that we're about to talk strategy on this retreat that we do every year. And literally we sit down with them and we say, hey, we want to talk a little bit about the wounds that we all carry. And they're all looking at us like, really, that's what we're going to talk about? And then we begin to open up, and we've been in the room when, with men and women who are ministry leaders, pastors, leading huge organizations that are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they begin to weep as they talk about the wounds that they carry. Of You know how hard I've been working to try to earn the affection of my earthly father who never told me he loved me, never told me he was proud of me. And they carry that with them. And sometimes it makes them work a little bit harder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little bit heavier. I'm going to pursue a little bit faster. When deep down inside, they're, they're just wanting someone to look at them and say, guess what, I love you, not because of what you're about to do, just because of who you are. And I want to champion the call of God in your life. And I'm not going to abuse you. I'm not going to misuse you. I'm not going to try to just, for my own gain, uh, that's not why I'm, you're in my life. No, I am here to champion God's call in you. And we watch as people begin to experience breakthrough and they begin to weep because no one's ever said that to them. I, I love that in this passage, Jesus lived from this deep well of prayer, of remaining connected to the Father, and identity, being loved and affirmed by the Father. I don't know about you, but I want to live from that well. I want to live from the well that 
then I'm not trying to earn the affection and the love of God. I'm, I, I want to live from the well where I'm not trying to manufacture things on my own. I don't know how you do it nowadays because guess what? When you walk out of these doors, there's too many heavy things that are going to hit you. you. You can't get on social media or the news and it's just the heaviness and the weight. And I, I just let me tell you a little bit about the psychology of me real quick because I'm sure you're really interested in that. I carry things really heavily. Not things that are day-to-day ordinary, like what's going to happen when I walk out into the parking lot, but the things that I can't change. I carry those. And if I don't live from this place of well of connected to the Father, I'll carry things in, on me that I can't change, that I'm not responsible for changing, and I'll begin to carry them like weights. And the Father says, no, you can't. You can't do that. You can't live lightly and freely if you carry the weights around you. No, you have to remain and abide and stay connected, and you rely on me to carry the weights that you're unable to carry. I want to live from that well. Years ago, a mentor of mine told a story that just so deeply resonated with me, and I've shared it many times over the years in many different contexts, but the story goes something like this. I have four children. My oldest is Jackson. He's almost 12. And let's say that I take Jackson camping with me and we set up a campfire, it's just me and him, and I look at Jackson and I say, hey buddy, man, here's what I need from you. Here's what your dad needs from you in life is I need you to grow up and I need you to be the best. I want you to be the best basketball player and I want you to be the first in school and graduate at the top of your class and I want you to go to a prestigious university and, and do the things that you need to do to graduate at the top of your class, get a great job. Live the American dream, go find a great woman, get married, have 2.5 perfectly behaved children, whatever the American dream looks like. Go do all of those things. None of those things are inherently evil, are they? But what does Jackson do from that moment? If 12 years old, sitting around the campfire, he gets up from that moment, he's like, okay, I've got to go earn the affection of my father by performing up to this standard. And let me ask you this, what happens when Jackson can't perform to the standard that I've set for him. He's going he's to begin to live from this deep place of insecurity because his father didn't love him unconditionally. His father's love came with certain conditions, didn't it? No, perform. You need to do this. Oh, you're not the best at this? Well, why not? Let me give you another scenario, though, that Jackson and I are sitting around a campfire, and I look at him and I say, hey, Jackson, let me tell you what your dad wants from you in your life. I just want to know you. I want to do this. Like, can we do this 10 years from now and 20 years? As long as God gives me life on this planet, I just want to know you. I, I, I just want to be your dad. What does Jackson do in that moment? Jackson gets up, and he may go do incredible things and, 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 and maybe achieve some of those things, but he doesn't do it from a place of, I need to earn the affection of my father, does he? He does it from a place that says, my father already loves me, and now I get to live in that love. Can I tell you there's a huge difference of earning the father's affection and living in the father's affection? There's a huge difference. And, and I think one of the, the reasons that we have a spiritual formation crisis in the church today is because we have a disordered understanding of who God is. I think there's a lot of people in the church today that if you don't believe that God is good and true and that God is 100% good, He's not 99% good. There's not 1% of God that could be open for debate of whether or not he's for you. He's 100% good. If you believe that, it will change your interaction with him. It'll change how you see him. It'll change the way that you live and that you flow from this place of being and not just doing. 
And I love in the transfiguration moment where this miraculous encounter is happening and and the Father is affirming and and confirming the identity of Jesus that he is divine, he's my son, he is the one called to come and rescue the world from their sin, and he says, this is my son. I love him. I want you to know this morning, and maybe this can be revelation to somebody in this room, your heavenly Father speaks over you. You're my son, you're my daughter. I love you. Nothing can change that. Live in that. Rest in that. Don't walk out of these doors and try to achieve. Don't get on the treadmill of performance and think that if I just run a little bit faster, I'll get there. No, you'll get tired. You'll get burdened. You'll get weary and you'll burn out. And rest in the Father's love. Live from it. Let your life be an overflow of this, this transfiguration story. Jesus is identified as the Son of God and the coming Messiah. His foreshadowed the exaltation to heaven and a glimpse of what is to come that God is going to redeem and restore. And Jesus instructs his disciples and trains them for what is ahead. I love that this passage ends with this. This is my son, I love him. Now listen to him. Listen to him. This was for the three disciples who didn't completely know what was coming up next, but the road that they were about to walk down was a road of suffering. Jesus has pointed his face toward Jerusalem, and he was going to the cross, and he was, he was calling his disciples to pick up their cross and carry it with them. And, and guess what? We're, we're about to go into that season. The season of Lent is us journeying with Jesus to the cross. Of all the Christian calendar, I would probably say Lent is the season that is most intense in the life of a believer because it's a season of repentance And it's a season where we look at Jesus and say, whatever it means to carry my cross, I'm going with you. If it means discomfort, if it means making sacrifice, then guess what? You're worth it because you are the Son of God. right? You're the Messiah who God has come to redeem and restore. Let me ask these two questions and then we're going to pray this morning and come and take communion in just a second. Will we live from a place of being connected to the Father? And finding our identity in him. What a great reminder. Let me tell you, I believe this is one of the reasons we have spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices and rhythms so that we don't learn to live in our own power, in our own way, but we continually lean on the Father. And then the question is this, will we follow him? Will we listen to him? Because of this revelation of who Jesus is, will we follow Jesus into discipleship and sacrifice and obedience no matter where the path may take us. If you would this morning, if you would just close your eyes right where you're at. This is the point in the sermon where I always ask the Holy Spirit to come and to personalize the message and the word of God for me. Because I don't convict, I don't save, I don't challenge or draw near. That's the work of the Spirit. And when we hear the word of God, when we hear this, what we ask is, Holy Spirit, would you, would you move? Would you speak? Would you rearrange my priorities? Would you rip out of me maybe some things that I'm seeking my identity in? If you're seeking to find your identity in anything other than him, that is sin and will keep you from life. Is there anything in me, man, that I... 
I'm looking to be affirmed in other ways by what I do, by what people think, by how I perform. And that we say this morning, Father, I give you everything. You're loved. You're chosen. You're favored. The Father looks at you and smiles. He says, you're my son, you're my daughter. Holy Spirit, we just thank you right now for your word. We thank you that the seeds that were planted will never return void, Father, but we ask that it would produce a harvest in our lives, God. I pray that you would personalize the word today for where we're at, Father, and what we need. For some of us who need to be challenged, will this challenge us out of our status quo and out of the place of complacency into the place that you called us? For some that you're drawing near, Father, God, we just confess that we're sinners. We need a Savior, someone to rescue us, Father. Would you come and rescue us because we are unable to rescue ourselves? God, for some who just need to be comforted this morning, they're walking in here burdened, overwhelmed, with anxieties, with fear. Father, would you be perfect love right now? As 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out all fear. They cannot coexist And God, we just trust in who you are. And Father, last but not least, we just prepare our hearts this morning to come to the table, to recenter our hearts around the work of Jesus, the body and the blood of Christ, that you are everything. That maybe this week we've drifted a little bit, maybe we've sought false identities, but Father, we find our identity in you today, in the work of Jesus done for us. And then finally, I just speak a prayer of blessing over this church. God, I thank you for the life change that is happening at Cornerstone. God, I thank you for John, this staff, this team. God, I pray that you would continue to use this body to reach a city, that it would be a light in a dark place, that people would come running, be set free, Father. I just speak life. God, I thank you that we're partners in the gospel to see this city, the world transformed, redeemed through the work of Jesus. And I speak blessing over them today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.